Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Ryan Honeyman, a partner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Jeff Clements. Jeff serves as president of American Promise. American Promise is a fast-growing, cross-partisan network of Americans working locally and nationally to win the next amendment to the U.S. Constitution so that citizens, not money, govern America. Jeff has practiced law for three decades in public service and private practice. He's also the author of Corporations Are Not People, Reclaiming Democracy from Big Money and Global Corporations, which was published at Barrett Kohler, same as my publisher. Jeff's also the founder of Whaleback Partners, LLC, which provides sustainable financing to businesses in the local agricultural economy. And previously, Jeff had been a partner in a major Boston law firm and served as assistant attorney general and chief of the Public Law Enforcement Bureau in the attorney general's office in Massachusetts. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I thought I'd start with giving listeners just a little bit of a background you know, we don't do too many, quote unquote, politics leaning podcasts. And so it may be helpful for folks. So the background to why I'm speaking with Jeff is I have an uncle of mine who's Republican conservative. And I reached out to him recently because I've been feeling like the country's basically not, I think most of us, whether you're Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal can agree the country's not going too well these days in terms of like the partisan fighting and gridlock. So I reached out to him and said, hey, I'd love to just understand your side more. Like, tell me, like, what are the top two to three things that keep you up at night? And how are you feeling about the country? And yeah, what most concerned you? And it was really based on this, like, humble curiosity and learning. It wasn't sort of, I'm secretly trying to convert you to be a, a Democrat or, <laughs> or progressive. And it was really positive. And some of the things that we spoke about and that I actually never knew about my uncle he voted for Donald Trump and he a strong supporter of Trump, also watches Tucker Carlson regularly in Fox News. So I just assumed I would not have anything that I agreed with with my uncle. And we came across Citizens United and Money in Politics. And I was sort of joking with him, like, yeah, one of the biggest problems I see is just money in politics. He's like, and he said, absolutely. He's like, Citizens United, United is a travesty. And I said, what? Like, do we agree? <laughs> we agree on something? Like, my Trump supporting uncle and me sort of super liberal progressive. So through the excitement of realizing we agreed on something, researched American Promise, came across Jeff and reached out to Jeff immediately and said, I got to have you on the podcast because this is exciting to know that there's something that could potentially be a major piece that we can move forward on a bipartisan basis. And so Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about some of your background and how you kind of came into the, what's the sort of backstory to American Promise? American Promise. Promise. <laughs> we are your uncle, we are Ryan, and we are all Americans yeah. who share that deep concern and perspective about the country fragmenting, not working, not functioning, and recognizing a big part of the problem is our politics have been completely taken over by an insane amount of money, billions of dollars coming from very few s sources relatively speaking. It's not coming from the broad spectrum of Americans. It's mostly coming from very wealthy donors or powerful interests 
And most of the money is spent on basically information warfare against each other to make us hate each other and depress the vote of the other side and energize your vote by on your side, quote unquote, by either scaring the heck out of them or making them think that the other side is going to destroy the country, so you better go vote. So it's just a terrible, terrible system. The only upside is it's bringing us together, just like you and your uncle. So that's what American Promise does. And Ryan, I think your question was, what's the background to American Promise? Yeah, yeah how did you come to, to where you are today? Yeah. Yeah. So my own background, as you said at the outset, is in the law. I didn't set out to run a national nonprofit or... Lord knows, to amend the U.S. Constitution, which is what we're doing. I set out to be an attorney. I was very interested in public law, which is all of the, all law, I think, is public policy oriented in one sense or another. But the power of the law and the possibility of the law to actually do justice and to enforce the laws that are enacted ultimately by the American people is a a real privilege. And that's what I was excited about. And I spent a lot of years doing it, both in the private sector and in public service. But I have to say, by around 2010, I had been practicing law for two decades. We had the attorney general's office. I had enforced the law against big industries like the tobacco industry in the 90s when we did the tobacco litigation or pharmaceutical companies or other big, big impactful cases that showed an awful lot about the power of global corporations. And, and I represented some of them when I was in private practice. So I, I had seen, regardless of which side I was on, a real shift in, in what had happened to the U.S. Constitution over my period of practicing law, where essentially the Supreme Court was deciding cases in a way, interpreting the First Amendment freedom of speech or interpreting the Constitution consistently to favor big, powerful interests, whether corporations or wealthy people, and to disfavor the average American. And so I was actually going to write a kind of wonky law review article about it, mainly for my own curiosity to say, you know, how, how does this happen? It's really interesting that the Constitution can change so dramatically and have no debate in the country about it, really. And that's what ultimately became the Citizens United case, where the Supreme Court held that corporations have the same rights as people, including the new right invented by the Supreme Court in recent years, to spend unlimited money to influence the outcome of elections. And that's to me, is kind of the end game of what I had seen in the law and was going to write about, which is... It sounds like it's very fair. Everybody has free speech. Well, some of them have a trillion dollars in market cap and they're global. And some of them are school teachers and cops, but they both have the same free speech right to spend all the money they want to influence the outcome of our elections. So to say it like that shows its obvious folly and your uncle gets it, you get it, and almost every American gets it, that it it is not free speech. So I had actually turned that law review article into a brief in the Supreme Court, filed that brief in the Citizens United case. I was still practicing law. I defended and helped defend some of the state laws that had been dealt with anti-corruption and money in state elections for over 100 years, including in Montana, where the attorney general at the time was trying to enforce the laws that had originally been passed to deal with the robber barons and the copper companies that had basically taken over that state in the progressive era. Those laws were under attack after Citizens United. 
By about 2016, to fast forward to American Promise, it became clear that the courts and lawyers were not going to fix this problem. They were going to make it worse. And that the only hope against what otherwise I see as a, a rapid path to oligarchy or plutocracy is to have the American people unite to pass a constitutional amendment to correct those mistakes and say, actually, free speech, equal representation in our political system are both values that belong to all Americans. And we have the ability and, and the right to enact reasonable, effective regulations of corporate money and other money in elections. So that's what American Promise set out to do. I will say that for many issues, thinking about passing a constitutional amendment, for me, it has always felt not silly, but just impossible, or why even try? And I think what has changed my opinion and been more excited about what you're doing is that it seems to be more bipartisan than I like, we're not going to ever pass a constitutional amendment that's just half of the just Democrats or like just progressives or whatever. What gives it a chance is the broad support. Can you speak about why is there such broad support or like <laughs> when most issues are so polarized for this? Yeah. And you can say silly, Ryan. That's okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to speak to that too, to both of those points about the bipartisan support for this as well. But I do think it, your initial reaction, the constitutional amendment, are you kidding me? It's important to talk about that because lawyers by nature are kind of conservative. And, you know, I didn't, as I said, I didn't spend my life in activism and professionally, it doesn't really advance your lawyerly scholarly career to say, hey, let's go amend the Constitution, right? Because the initial reaction of many people would be much like yours. You know, how's that ever going to happen? That's tilting at windmills kind of thing. What made me realize that this is actually a, a historic opportunity that would be an incredibly short-sighted tragedy if we didn't seize it is exactly what you pointed out, which is Almost every American believes in the Constitution as we are trying to shape it with this amendment, that the Constitution protects the right of Americans to protect ourselves in our elections, to protect our own rights of free speech, to not be drowned out by crazy money, whether it's from foreign governments or global corporations or billionaires, that elections are not like the economy where anyone can invest whatever they want. Elections are a special place like jury trials or other institutions of Republican self-government. And it's actually our duty to defend it. You know, every American before us has had the same question. Am I going to be silly and go out and say women have the right to vote, even though it's going to take an amendment? That's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> but they did it and women have the right to vote. Am I going to be silly and go out and say, well, senators aren't elected, they're appointed in back rooms, but maybe they ought to be elected. Why don't we amend the constitution? You know, So somebody's got to be the <laughs> willing to be silly. And then what, what do you know? You look behind you and there's millions of Americans with you because it turns out the idea is actually pretty sound. So it's not silly anymore. And what got me into that to recognize that was something that happened in Montana. I mentioned that case. It went up to this. We won in the Montana Supreme Court, which is not exactly a radical lefty Supreme Court. The Supreme Court of Montana held eight to one that the laws of Montana that had regulations around the spending of money in their elections were perfectly constitutional, notwithstanding Citizens United, that the, the, these laws had been in effect in the states for 100 years. The First Amendment hadn't changed. So the Montana Supreme Court interpreted the 
federal Supreme Court as being pretty eccentric, but it must apply to federal law, but it doesn't apply to Montana law. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States didn't even give Montana a hearing and summarily reversed the Montana Supreme Court and struck down 24 state laws across the country with that single non-decision, basically no hearing, just some summary reversal. The response of the people of Montana, I think, is what you saw with your uncle, what we've seen with American Promise. Within three weeks, they had volunteers had collected 40,000 signatures to put up a ballot initiative saying to the Supreme Court, essentially, no, you're wrong and we're going to overturn you. The ballot initiative passed a law that instructed the Montana delegation in Congress to pass this constitutional amendment and return it to the states for ratification. That's the process. You need two thirds of Congress and then gets ratified by three quarters of the states. So Montana kicked that process off. This was about 2012. That year, Mitt Romney was running against Barack Obama for president. Mitt Romney beat Obama by 10 points, at least in Montana. Those same voters that same day passed this ballot initiative calling for this amendment 75% to 25%. So it was clear that there's nowhere in this country where you cannot win a straight up vote with Americans deciding, what do you think about this? 75, 25, 80, 20. The puzzle is what the 20 or 25% are thinking about you know, this, but that's okay. We, we don't need everybody, and I'm sure they'll be happy with the result in the end. But the fact is we can win this everywhere. So we saw several of those in different states back then, and that's why in 2016 we launched American Promise to really take on the hardest part of this, which is you have to unite in a very divided time. You have to unite Republicans, Democrats, independents. You have to get wins along the way, like those state votes. You got to build massive pressure to actually overcome the immense obstacle that Congress is. And we are doing that. So we're doing all those things. And, and we are Republicans, Democrats, independents at American Promise at every level, staff, board, members across the country. That's who we are. I love it. And one thing progressives don't realize is that and you tell me if this is true, but unions supported Citizens United decision, right? Largely. Like it wasn't just yeah. corporations. Like their unions also liked the freedom to spend whatever they want in. Well, yeah. exactly. And the unions, you can't generalize, just like you can't generalize generalize about corporations. Yeah. And Some we can talk more, more talk more about that, that you know, corporations don't have a monolithic viewpoint on this, nor do unions, but many unions, including public sector unions, spend a lot of money to influence elections. And they thought Citizens United striking down a law that applied both to unions and corporations would be a good thing. Many of them have now realized, well, maybe that wasn't such a good thing and they support the amendment too, but just like many corporations do now. But you're right, absolutely right. It, it applied to unions and it applied to corporations and unions are big spenders in politics right now. I think some Democrats maybe don't realize, Democrats might be like, why would Republicans or conservatives not want to have corporations spend or wealthy folks. But I think many progressives or Democrats don't know that the dark money that Democrats are spending is more than Republicans right now, right? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. It's really been interesting, Ryan, to see how this has played out in, yeah. in, in the past 10 years or so. So we now have regularly elections approaching $20 billion in spending. We have Senate races, just the Senate race alone in many states, over 200 million, sometimes going up to 600 million, like in Georgia. So we just have a massive 
multi-billion dollar operation that we call elections. Behind that, all of that, is relatively few players, and they're very connected to the two parties. Both parties have infrastructure that essentially is about super PACs, dark money, and a massive political industrial consultant class that's making a ton of money off this horrible system. The Republicans did get the jump in the early years. They were ready to go and outspent the Democrats. Almost all the Democrats quickly lined up in favor of overturning Citizens United, as they say, and, and supporting this amendment. And Republicans, it was really interesting that what we saw in Montana was not unusual. Republicans in the country agreed, essentially, but the Republican sort of Washington class were very effective and opposing any change because it was working for them. Well, the Democrats have more than caught up. And you're right, Democrats are now two to one outspending Republicans in dark money. Democrats are winning many of the big money races, including in Georgia. Democrats are as close to the billionaires and this this massive political influence class as you can imagine, to the detriment, I think, frankly, of of what Democrats stand for, just like the Republicans have been, and our whole system has been corrupted by this problem. So yeah, I think the reasons why Republicans and Democrats support this often end up being a little bit different, and the vocabulary they use is a little bit different, but they end up in the same place. And the fact that neither side can really win, it's an endless arms race, essentially, makes it a bit easier now to begin moving people towards taking action to fix it. Yeah. I remember reading something recently that even now, Democratic dark money operations are funding far right candidates in Republican primaries in order to have the far right Republican go to the general election and then lose. Like, it's just, it's like, as a progressive person, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's like not what we should be spending. It, It just shows you how broken the system is if that's what we're, we're coming to. It absolutely shows how broken the system is, and it's dangerous, frankly. The level of cynicism about how this money is used cannot be exaggerated. And that is the most sort of extreme, perhaps, where you have President Biden one day saying that MAGA Republicans are the danger to democracy, while the Democrats' money operation is funding MAGA Republicans, literally funding MAGA Republicans because they beat moderates. The Democrats helped take out by funding Trump Republicans against Peter Mayer, who was a congressman who actually voted for impeachment. He was a moderate Republican. He was actually pretty libertarian, conservative, but he he worked across partisan lines. He was in the Problem Solvers Caucus. Did he get rewarded by this system? No. The Democrats and others on the other side basically joined forces to take him out. And so we have documented where actors are being used in the same Senate races in these funded, horrible ads we've all seen that basically trash the candidate on the other side and, you know, saying like, we in Maine just can't trust Sarah Gideon. And then you'll see, you'll see the same thing, the same actor in four other states. We here in Iowa just can't trust as if, so the level of cynicism and nastiness of this stuff is not just to be sort of bemoaned because it's ridiculous or offensive. It actually has an impact on our political system because what that does to voters, what it does to people and what it takes away from actually getting useful information about 
that can inform your vote is really destructive. So, yeah, I think it's, and this is just, you know, what are we, 10 years into this? What does it look like in 20 years? What does it look like in 30 years? That's why we need the constitutional fix, because if we don't bite that bullet, mm-hmm. we're just at the beginning of where this is headed. That's a great point. It's already pretty terrible now, <laughs> and this is only 10 years down the road. Did I hear you say, I think it maybe it's another interview, that it's like 99% of political spending is, comes from 300 families or something like that? Did you say something like that? That might be out there somewhere. There was a point in 2016 when almost ah. all the money was, was coming from 300 families. But the point, I don't want to use that exact number for the overall spending sure. because it's, it's a little bit more than that. But basically, three out of four of the dollars is coming from far less than 1% mm. of the people. It's yeah. like less than half of 1%. The concentration of what's called the donor class is getting more and more concentrated, essentially. So... There are some who literally write checks for $125 million on both sides. George Soros on the Democratic side. There was just a contribution that you might have heard about of $1.6 billion what was on, that? The Republic, on the Republican side to fund some of the Supreme Court operations that to influence the judiciary and things like that. $1.6 billion from a billionaire. So the... Amount. That's why I say, without exaggeration, oligarchy or plutocracy, terms like that exist because in human history, that's often where attempts at democracy have ended up with basically the most powerful in a society having control. And that's, that is where we're headed. It's far less than 1% of Americans actually participating in the funding of the system. You know, most Americans don't give any money. People I know, my old lawyer friends here in Massachusetts who are politically active, assume that when they're writing their checks, that's what people do. Actually, most people don't. And $200 is like to a candidate is nothing. That won't even get you a phone call, <laughs> let alone let alone the meeting that the million-dollar donors are getting. But the vast majority of Americans couldn't even consider spending $200 of their family budget on a politician. And so they're just not at the table. And so the, the concentration of the money is as big a problem as the amount and how it's spent. Could you give us the idea, the sort of process for American Promise what is the timeline and how do you see it playing out in your ideal and maybe more ideal versus, versus realistic or conservative scenario of it playing out? Yeah. So how it plays out is the same way it's played out 27 other times. So we didn't invent this idea and we didn't invent the strategy. Americans have been doing it since the beginning of the country. You know, the Constitution came out of the Philadelphia Convention and immediately the debate broke out and Americans said, no, this isn't good enough. This isn't going to protect our rights. And there's huge debate, of course. And we did 10 amendments in the Bill of Rights so that the past two thirds of Congress ratification by two thirds of the states. That has happened repeatedly, particularly in eras of crisis like our own. So we did three amendments in the aftermath of the Civil War. We did four amendments between 1910 and 1920. We did four amendments between 1961 and 1971. And if you look at each of those eras, those were decades of immense challenge where political violence, massive division, real questions about whether the country was going to be sustained as a democracy. And Americans responded with not just one amendment, but repeated amendments. So we looked at how did those wins happen? And how did the ones that didn't get through, where did they go wrong? We talked to you know Gloria Steinem at the Equal Rights Amendment. 
passed two thirds of Congress, didn't quite make it to ratification in three quarters of the states. So we looked at all that and we learned a couple of things. One is, of course, it has to be cross-partisan, bipartisan. You say you don't have politics much on this show. And I I would say this, in a lot of ways, this isn't politics. That's, Mm -hmm. I think that's a key test. It has to transcend politics and engage Americans who actually don't even like politics, but they like America, they like their families, they like deciding that, you know, we're going to do the right thing for the good of their communities and families in the country. So it has to be personal and it has to be local. Even though it's a big abstract thing in some ways, we're going to amend the Constitution. Congress is going to have to decide to pass that. It has to actually be at the kitchen table, at the Rotary Club, at the local chamber, and then link to an, an overall strategy to get it done. So that we do all those things. And so we set out with a 10-year game plan. We knew this wasn't going to be a sort of election cycle project. It's going to be a long-term game plan. We're about halfway into it. We now have 22 states that have formally passed resolutions like Montana has. We have over 200 votes in in the House, close to 50 in the Senate. The challenge now is to get Republicans in the Senate and House with their own version of the amendment, and then we'll bring it together in around 2024 or five and move to rapid ratification. Most of these amendments, once you get out of Congress, they get ratified in 18 months to two years, tops. So we're realistically looking at getting this done in the next several years. And the test will be, can we make it local? Can we use our network strategy in states, in enough states in the next couple of years to build that energy that can get it out of Congress and back to the states for ratification? We are super local, and that's why we are able, I think, to engage so many Americans. We have Rotary members doing presentations at Rotaries all over the country. One of our best volunteers in Pennsylvania, a very divided state is a Republican retired CEO of the Harrisburg Chamber of Commerce who has engaged all of the local chambers and the state chamber to get business support for the amendment. And they support it. The response has been phenomenal. We have a social workers network. National Association of Social Workers is working with us, the 600,000 social workers. They're in every community in America. So this isn't about just getting the politicians going. It's actually about getting Americans going do we want to fix this or not? And most people do if given a chance. And that's what American Promise can do. And I love the the 10-year vision. And I think learning about 22 states already passing resolutions in support of this actually is really critical, right? You're not starting at, okay, we're starting at zero and we got to start, right. <laughs> you know. So some of that legwork. I'm curious about one thing, I am curious about the 25% who don't support it, or maybe it's just not clear. I read this book recently called High Conflict by Amanda Ripley. I don't know if you've read it, but one of the things that is problematic and leads to a conflict is having a binary, you're either Republican or Democrat, or it's like you're either them or us. And so I worry, part of me worries about like, you either vote for this amendment or you don't. There's like no like third option or anything. And I'm just kind of curious, how are you thinking about that? And how are you preparing potentially to, for basically the negative ad campaigns that will probably come from the people who are benefiting the most from the current system currently? Yeah, I think there's actually a lot packed into that question, because I think there's, I'd like to speak to a couple different aspects of it. One on the, the binary aspect that you're right, when you put it up for a vote in a ballot initiative, for example, voters have to 
decide, are they for this or not? Many of them are reading this for the first time in the ballot box. We don't have a huge budget, so we're not able to saturate the airwaves like our friends at the super PACs. So some voters may not have heard about it. And they're walking in and reading about an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Now, I don't blame anyone who feels like, well, I'm not quite sure. I don't know enough yet. So I better not vote for this. I'm not sure what it means. I think that's some significant portion of the 25%. And we see that in our polling. When we do polling, the 75% is solid. When we ask and drill in a little bit, the opposition is actually usually under 10%. And there's sort of 15% who aren't sure. And so one thing I want to emphasize is we believe we can and want to earn the support of every single American. We'd like this to be 100%. We don't actually want anyone to feel like they've lost. I don't think they have to. I think there might be some who lose some revenue and they, they might not like this in the end. But, you know, I've talked to lobbyists, I've talked to politicians, I've talked to people who run super PACs, and many of them are saying, please do they this. Hate it too. We, yeah, we need to get it. we need to get out of the system. Yeah. So I really do believe we can do this with everybody on board. Many of those who are against it now, we don't give up on anybody. Um, and even if they're against it for reasons of principle, like they say, no, this is free speech. We don't want the government regulating money in politics. I respect that view. I respect the Supreme Court. I am a lawyer. I don't think I think they made a big mistake, I think a historic, catastrophic mistake, which the court has done several times in its history. But I don't think that they are beyond persuasion either, but I think they're not going to change it now, so it's up to the amendment. But I do think the beauty of this project is it reinforces the notion that America is built on, that we are capable of reasoning together, of debating and learning together and getting to the right outcome. So one of the things we do is we don't say, oh, here's what the amendment has to say. You're with us or against us. We actually, one of our projects is called Writing the 28th Amendment. We've had town halls in virtually every state in the country where we're kind of crowdsourcing what the amendment should say. And Americans can weigh in. You know, they can decide, well, what about that word's a little troubling? Or what does that do for the, the states who should be able to regulate state elections? We don't want Congress coming in and telling us what to do with our school committee. Those kind of questions, those are good questions. And they've made the language better. So it's, it's been an amazing process where Americans really can handle constitutional law, I think, frankly, better than the lawyers in the Supreme Court, because we have time to learn and listen to each other. You know, over the 10 years... That's where this will play out. Now, does that mean I'm sanguine about forces that might want to stop this? No, but that is, informs our strategy too, that it would be a mistaken strategy to think, well, if we just raise enough money and do enough TV ads, we'll win this because there's not enough money in the world to compete with the super PACs and the, and the billionaires who might not want to give up power. Human beings don't often voluntarily surrender power to others when they've gotten used to its perks. So this is about ultimately about power. This isn't an abstract exercise. This is a question of whether the power to decide the destiny of this country and the people who live here is going to be in a very few hands or it's going to be in the hands of everybody. And that's a profoundly a big question that some are not going to want to give up power. So do we go toe to toe with them and on ad dollars? No. That's why we are doing our strategy. When they are spending the big money to try to stop it, 
Americans, it will be too late. Americans have already heard about this down at the Rotary Club, out at the farmer's market, in the boardroom, in the town council. 800 cities and towns have passed resolutions in, in town councils and local ballot initiatives. So our strategy is actually kind of old fashioned in a digital modern era where we think Americans talking to each other locally is actually the best inoculation against misinformation and big money strategies to try to stop this later. So that's that's our plan. And the beauty of it is it, it does have a sort of civic healing aspect too, because along the way to this good end goal, there's a lot of benefit that comes from the kind of conversation you had with your uncle. How can business folks or people related to the social enterprise or how can that world get involved in what you're doing? They already are. And I hope many of your listeners will sign up too. We have what we call our national business network. And you can find that on our website. I hope we'll get a link out for that for business people to sign up and join the national business network. Some of our best advocates are out of the sustainability ESG B Corp movements. Matt Patsky, who heads Trillium Asset Management, is going to be at our upcoming conference. He's on our advisory council. Rebecca Henderson at Harvard, who just wrote Reinventing Capitalism and Reimagining Capitalism in a Burning World. So some of our most impactful advocates are local and national business people who are managing their businesses for impact and improvement of environment and society. So I think that many of them recognize that if we don't get this right, it's going to be harder, if not impossible, to get the kind of environment where we have the sustainable, virtuous cycles that we're trying to create with this kind of economy. There's a very immediate work to be done. Sign up at the National Business Network. That will actually connect you locally as well with business people. And business people can be some of the best advocates in state legislatures, local councils, and with other sort of peer-to-peer work because the opposition actually won't, in the end, want to frame this about free speech. They've lost that debate already. No Americans virtually, might be a handful, but most people aren't feeling like this has helped free speech, this system. The best way to stop this is to make it seem partisan, make it seem like it's anti-business or something. And it isn't either of those. And so to have business people up front at the beginning saying we want we want a constitutional foundation that can actually enable a healthy business environment for businesses, including especially sustainability kind of businesses. That's a very powerful tool in our arsenal. So sign up at AmericanPromise.net. I love it. Do you want to mention any of the upcoming events or other ways that people can get involved? I know you have a live event coming up soon. Yes. So one of the things that we do and that was kind of hard in the last two years is convene together, you know, building community together, both locally, state level and and nationally. It's needed to learn from each other. It's needed to especially overcome divisions so that you and your uncle can be in the same conference and that the same doing work together, you actually begin to really appreciate each other's perspective and you are working in common, common cause on this issue. We have always had a national convening. It's the National Citizen Leadership Conference. The last year's was virtual, of course, but we are back live in Washington, D.C. And there's a reason we go to Washington, D.C. for it. This is our fifth annual National Citizen Leadership Conference. 
The conference is really great. We've got great speakers, including a business panel with Maureen Klein, who's the Vice President of Sustainability and Public Affairs at Pirelli Tire. Pirelli Tire is a global company. They have a no political spending rule, just like IBM. They'd like to see other businesses do that. They support this effort. So she'll be there with Matt Patsky, who I mentioned, other business people, but also all the other Americans who are getting behind this cause. There's a lot of interactive programming, a lot of learning, a lot of civic skill building that you take back home with you. But the reason we do it in Washington is the next day, there's a well-organized citizen lobby day. And whoever signs up and is at the conference, we automatically tee them up for meetings with their members of Congress the next day. And we go up to Capitol Hill and we'll have 150 plus meetings across Capitol Hill. It'd be great to have business folks there to talk to their members of Congress about why we need to do this constitutional amendment. So that's September 28th. The conference opens and up to Capitol Hill on September 29th. And again, the information and registration is all online at nclc.info. Oh, awesome. Yeah. What I would like to say is the aspiration to change the constitution, like I was saying early on, sort of to me actually fits the size of the problem. You know, I think sometimes there's solutions where it feels like, okay, we need to just pass this locally because there's no way it's going to change, you know, nationally or at state level. But for me, it's okay. Yeah, like changing the constitution feels exciting because it both feels within reach. You just sort of need to get enough people to believe that it's possible, I think, <laughs> and also yeah. talk to their rep elected representatives. But it also just, yeah, it's it's like a very tangible thing that that's that folks can aspire to do. So I'm really excited about it and really support your work. And I'm definitely going to be involved probably with the business network in some other ways. So um, well thank you, Ryan. And yeah. and I hope we'll see you at the conference too. You yeah. Can, you can you can broadcast live from our conference if you want. And uh <laughs> but I think you really put your finger on it. This is a systemic solution for a systemic problem. And if you don't have a match, if you have a much smaller sort of band-aid for a systemic problem, it doesn't get done and it only feeds the cycle of hopelessness. And I think to just, again, I, I use the phrase bite the bullet, but basically accept the predicament we're in, which is we have a constitutional sort of DNA level problem, which is we're told that our constitution prohibits us from doing anything about the power of money influence in our elections. And we have a solution set, which is, well, no, the Constitution doesn't prohibit us from doing that. So we have to make it constitutional with this amendment. It's exactly aligned to what is really the systemic underlying problem with the systemic solution that's permanent and lasting. You know, once once we win this fight, we win it forever. And then, of course, there'll be lots of other problems. And democracy is always about challenges and problem solving. But at least we'll, we'll have another run uh, at the possibility of you know, American self-government for a new century that's going to have all kinds of challenges, just like the last one did. And I think you mentioned something that shouldn't be glossed over in the sense that the reparative work in working together towards a bipartisan solution is actually going to help a lot of the other issues be, at least have folks have more common ground. It's not going to solve everything, obviously, but I think folks might miss the value of just building relationships across the aisle and across different groups. So, yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, we, we forget, actually. And so we miss opportunities when we're not talking to each other. We assume that there's no 
possibility of working together or talking together. And then you have something that you can actually connect with. And it's at the real deep level. It's at a values level. It's at a at a principles level. And it's ultimately at a, a level of, do we have a shared vision of what this country is about? And that's profound when you say, well, we had all these disagreements, but we actually have a shared vision of what this country is about. They, whoever the they are, they want their kids to grow up and be free people in a society that isn't run by a bunch of oligarchs. Well, and me too. How about that? And then you start to appreciate their perspective and other possibilities open up for productive work together because you you have had your eyes opened that maybe the demonization that we're fed about each other isn't the whole story. Well, thanks again, Jeff. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and we'll definitely have you back on for updates as the campaign progresses. Thank you, Ryan. I look forward to it. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.